The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. Well, good morning. Good to be back at it with a nice full chapel and a new semester ahead of us. As Mr. Kaywood said, lots of opportunities in front of us, lots of things to be praying about and to take part in, and uh, we trust that you're off to a good start. I just want to remind you that uh, we are committed to praying for you on a regular basis among the faculty and staff. Uh, last week, we had our prayer service, which we uh, gather at the beginning of every semester to read scripture and pray uh, and to worship. And uh, last week, we did the same and uh, prayed for you and for our work here uh, as a faculty and staff that God's hand would be upon it. Commit this semester uh, to the Lord. And uh, I'm very excited about what's in front of us. I'm very excited about the guests that we'll have on campus over the next several uh, weeks and months. I'm very excited about uh, the opportunities that are in front of you as students to hear from uh, folks from around the country and around the world this year with the Global Mission Week as well, uh, and uh, lots of good things going on. I'm looking forward to my time in chapel with you as well. Uh, I have a, a number of sessions planned, and uh, if you've been watching the schedule and some of the other things, uh, we are starting a new series. The series will be entitled, Think on These Things, Keeping a Biblical Mindset in a Cynical and Subversive Age. Think on These Things, Keeping a Biblical Mindset in a Cynical and Subversive Age age. I've been wrestling a lot with uh, sort of the world in which we live. Uh, as Mr. Kaywood prayed, uh, there's no end to the tension and confusion that's out there, uh, politically, economically, socially, culturally. Uh, there is a great deal of tension uh, that we have to interact with on a regular basis. And that tension finds its way into our midst at times as well. But I'm concerned about something else that happens in our world. And I've uh, been watching it now over uh, 30 or more years of Christian service, and watching the intensity with which the context in we find ourselves, the intensity with which it's coming after us in a cynical and subversive way. Now, let me just nail down a couple of terms for you in terms of what we mean, because I think we think we, when we hear the word cynical, that we just mean people that are mean and nasty. Uh, and uh, that's not really what cynical means. Uh, cynical is actually a much more robust term, and the reason that I'm concerned about it is this. It's believing that people are motivated purely by self-interest or distrustful of human sincerity or integrity. But it's worse, it also means this, that we're concerned only with our own self-interest and typically disregard accepted or appropriate standards in, a, in, a, in, a, in an attempt to achieve our own self-interest. In other words, Cynicism isn't just being nasty or sarcastic. Cynicism is saying nothing else matters but what I feel and what I want. And I will go to great lengths to undermine anything that will attempt to make me feel like I should give in to something larger. Well, all you have to do is think about that definition and know that this is a problem for us as Christians. Anything that wants to sub subvert or, or undermine your functioning as though there's something more important in life than your self-interest, that's counter-Christian right off the bat. Because we exist to fulfill God's purposes on this earth. We are his servants. We conform ourselves to his expectations. And we're being conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. So cynicism in the lightest sense of it, in terms of sense of humor, I get that. But the cynical nature of the world in which we live is this, that your own self-interest, your own self-desires, your own feelings about something trumps everything else. No pun intended. There's something else going on, though. 
that it's not just a cynical world in which we live, it's a subversive world. It is that it is attempting to undermine established institutions, senses of rightness, uh, uh, communities. It isn't just that the world is trying to subvert the church. That's easy. Read the newspapers, look at the lawsuits that occupy the internet. It's easy to subvert the church. But the powers of this world wish to subvert the gospel. The advance of the proclamation that all of us must be saved by faith in the shed blood of Jesus as payment for sin. So the world in which we live is at once cynical, where individuals' own self-interest rule the day, and subversive in that it's attempting to undermine those things that are established as right and good. And for us to navigate this world, which is, in my judgment, cynical and subversive, and you don't have to look very far to see it, it permeates our media content. It permeates the media content that you ingest and digest on a regular basis. It permeates the social media. All that matters is what I think and what I feel in an unfiltered way. I'm going to express it because I don't care what you think, the church thinks, the university thinks, my parents think, the government thinks. They're my thoughts and I feel them and I don't care who it hurts. That's problematic. And in a subversive way, everything that we're taking in in the world around us is this, that there are no rules that matter. There are no institutions. There's nothing that should be forcing you to conform to anything larger than yourself. There's an attempt to undermine it, down, but make it less important. And if you think that that's not bearing on us as Christians, then I don't think you have your eyes open. The issue is this. You can believe in Jesus if that means praying in a circle after a football game, but don't tell me I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. You can have a best-selling book that proclaims that your life could be the best life you've ever had, and you can have that best life now, but don't proclaim that there's sin in the world and evil in the world that will be triumphed over by a returning Lord Jesus Christ. This is the issue. It wants to subvert what we know to be true. And for you and I, what we need to do is be mindful of the fact that the cynical and subversive world in which we live, we have to be careful, on guard, to keep and maintain a biblical mindset in that context. Because it is not easy. It is not easy. So what do we do? Well, it's not enough. It's really not enough to simply keep yourself from those things. Have fun trying to keep yourself from the world in which you live. We've had generations of Christians who have tried that over the centuries. All we have to do is isolate ourselves and no harm will befall us. But that would be refusing to admit this, that the sin nature resides inside of us. You can wall yourself off in a monastic existence. You will sin against one another because you are sinful. You can isolate yourself in some sort of legalistic code of conduct. Somebody will break it. If you look down through the, even the, the history of the last 50 years, you will find some of the most strident, conservative, and fundamentalist spiritual leaders in the church have abused others. Those rules don't protect us from those things. And so the thought is, well, if I could just isolate myself from the world, my wife grew up in Lancaster County. I can tell you this, the Amish would like to think they're isolating themselves from the world, but there's an extension cord that runs from my wife's family's neighbor's house to their house that runs a freezer. You can isolate yourself and wear different clothes and ride around in a buggy, but when the neighbors have electricity, you want a freezer. 
The world in which we live affects us. To think that because we're at a Christian college or in a Christian family or in a church that we don't have to guard ourselves against the the cynical and subversive nature of the context in which we live would be naive. So what I would like us to do is to think on these things. It's not enough to construct a set of rules or to wall ourselves off. We have to actually direct our minds to things and be intentional about what we're thinking. And so what I'd like to do this semester is to do that. Think on these things. Borrowing from that passage in Philippians where Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think on these things. Think on these things. Well, I want to borrow that and zero in on a couple of topics Today I want to talk about labels and identity, but I would like to talk about sin and grace. I would like to talk about purity and intimacy. I'd like to talk about faith and miracles in our world today. I'd like to talk about the issue of persevering and resting. These are things that we struggle with, things that the world around us would want to lead us in a different direction. We must maintain a biblical mindset in this world. It's an act of mental discipline, and mental discipline is a critical element of the Christian life. We must guard our minds, exercise our minds, and encourage and edify our minds. The passage that Mr. Kaywood read for us does just this. Paul from prison writes to these Christians at Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. If it were not so, he would not have needed to say it. The fact that he says, do not let yourself be captive, means some in their midst were already being taken captive, but if not that, at least the threat exists. And Paul says as Christians, you can't let this happen to you. You can't let this happen to you. I think this is what he's writing in the church at Philippi, the same thing when he says, think on these things. Do not allow yourself to be so influenced and informed by this world that you lose sight of what is true and good and noble and commendable and worthy of praise. It's why he tells those Christians in Rome that they're to be transformed by the renewing of their mind, no longer conformed to the pattern of this world. You read your Bibles, you will see guarding your mind is an essential spiritual discipline. You must guard your mind. You must exercise mental discipline. You must not just guard it in a defensive sense. You have to exercise it that it might get stronger, which is hopefully what we're doing for you here. Exercising your mind that you might strengthen your Christian mind. And then encourage and edify your mind. Good things in there. The right things in there. The best things in there. This is what we want to be thinking about. And so this series, I really want to do this Because what we think on, the things that we commit our mind to thinking on, has a tremendous impact upon what we think about any given aspect of life. And directing our minds to the right things, the best things, even the good things, keeps us from being taken captive mentally. The first step in this series as we begin a new semester is to come to the realization that this is possible, that it is a very real threat. And so what we have to do is decide that we're going to address it, open our eyes, admit that the problem is there, that the potential is real, and then work towards solutions. And I think that the first mental discipline we must attend to is remembering whose we are and reminding ourselves and one another of this truth 
And doing so often is important. Do not exchange that identity for another identity or label that will take you captive and lead you astray. The first mental discipline for the Christian is to remember whose we are and what has been accomplished for us. It's what we were singing about this morning. It's what we're focusing on in this passage of Scripture. I think it's what Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was driving at with these Christians who were living in a very robust and complex and difficult culture. He says to them, see to it that no one takes you captive. The threat is real. But what does he do? He drives this first mental discipline home. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. You are not just identified with Jesus as one of his people. You are identified with him in that you have been made moved from death to life. You've been redeemed. His blood was shed that you might be forgiven. And the first mental discipline that we need to bring to bear in this world is that we are his. We are his. And we should remind ourselves often and remind one another because what we would do otherwise is we'll exchange that identity as the bought ones of Jesus for another identity. We will exchange the label of Christian for another label. And those labels and identities will take you captive and lead you astray. They will convince you that your circumstances in life are the sum total of who you are. That your identity resides in what you have accomplished or failed to accomplish. That That your identity resides in what you have done to others or they have done to you. Those things are crippling. There's too much work to do in this world to advance the cause of Christ and the spreading of the gospel to be preoccupied with those things. The first thing we must set down is that we are His. We should cling to that as our identity. And what Paul is saying to this church is just that. Don't be taken captive. And the best way to not be taken captive is to constantly be dwelling on this. He says this later in the book. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Keep your mind fixed on the right things. Remind yourself often that you are a bought one of Jesus. It's what we're supposed to be doing when we get together on Sundays. The purpose of getting together on Sundays as as Christians is to gather together for corporate edification and worship, not to feel better about ourselves, but to feel small in the love and grace and mercy of God. So when we come together and we sing songs and we pray and we read Scripture, it should be to fortify us, to remind us that this is the truth, that we are a sinful people saved by grace. And all that's required is faith that God has done everything else for us. He even gives us the faith to believe. The first mental discipline we must attend to is remembering whose we are. And that's a difficult thing in this world. Just think about the way this works. Think about the way that we identify today, politically, socially, culturally. We identify. We identify by Race, religion, socioeconomic status, region, nation. All of these things. Isn't it interesting that what the Bible tells us is once we come together in here, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all are in Christ. The issue is in here, in the body, we are one. 
But we want the labels. We want to associate. We associate with our favorite sports teams. I'm known as this fan, or that fan, or a fan of this individual. Our states, our regions. And too often the labels that we wear then become the identities that we bear. And that's a problem. That's a problem. This for the Christian is problematic. We are first and foremost His. Labeled as His redeemed and forgiven ones. And as a result then we bear that identity. The identity is Christians. It's very interesting. The Christians were referred to as Christians first in Antioch. Some scholars would say that that was not a, a term of endearment. It meant the ones enslaved to Jesus. Isn't it interesting that the term that we're given to be Christians who have been taken captive by Jesus is exactly what Paul's talking about. Don't be captive, taken captive to these vain and empty philosophies of the world. You've already been taken captive by the love of Christ. And so what we find ourselves doing is that's the, that's the identity we bear. That's the label we wear. And this matters a great deal. But in the world in which we live, that's it. It's by association. Republican or Democrat. Conservative or liberal. Evangelical, neo-evangelical. Whatever terms we're running from. This is it. We bear the name of Jesus. First and foremost. It's a powerful thing to bear a name. You think about what God gave Adam to do. What was it? Adam had dominion over all. What was his job? He got to name the creatures. You realize what a position of power that is? To say to a creature, you're this. The creature says, no, I don't want to be that. I want to be, no, I'm sorry. You're this. But I don't want to be a zebra. And I'm sorry, right? This is your, we're calling you this. This is what you are. Adam has the authority given to him by God to name the creatures. It's a very powerful thing. And once they have the name, they have the name. Look, the lies of the world and the flesh and the devil want to hang on you a name that will bring you to utter collapse. But the name of Jesus, when we bear it, is liberating. You may struggle with depression, but if you identify that is, that is your identity, you are missing the grace of God. You may be the victim of abuse, but if that's the identity that you, if you if that's the thing that defines you, it will wear you down. You may be a successful athlete, but if that's the identity that defines you, trust me, your knees, hips, and ankles will one day go. You may identify yourself as a great beauty, but as flowers fade, gravity comes to everybody. Age, decay, death awaits us all. If you put your identity in an experience, a circumstance, or an accomplishment, or achievement, or a physical attribute, you will be sorely, sorely disappointed. It's a powerful thing to wear a name. God knew that when he gave Adam that authority in the garden. You and I have to bear this in mind. Keep this in mind. Think on this. We are his. We are his. 
We should allow no experience, no achievement, no injustice, no privilege, no relationship, no self-concept, no diagnosis, no allegiance, no association to subvert this truth that I am a sinner saved by grace who belongs to my Savior, Jesus Christ. All those things may be true in your experiences. All those things you may have achieved. All those failures may be real. All those burdens may be real. Do not allow them to become the thing for which you are known. Go to your knees and receive the grace of God to sustain you in this life. The same grace that saved you. And cling to this reality that we are His and He is ours. For years, at the end of each term, in the rehearsal for commencement, I would read a text. We've now moved that to the commencement brunch where we recognize the seniors. But I share this with them as they're going out the door. It ties very appropriately to this idea because what the Apostle Paul is saying to these Christians is to remember that you've been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through faith in the power of working of God who raised him from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and you've been made alive. The record of debt and sin has been forgiven, wiped clean. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross, and disarmed all rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. Not only are you free from wearing those identities and labels, no one has the authority to put them on you. They've been, na- they've been nailed to the cross. We're free in Jesus. But this historical document, centuries old, from the Heidelberg Catechism, gets at this issue. The first question of the catechism is, what is thy only comfort in life and in death? And if you think about it, this is what we're talking about. Think, uh, but I'm clinging to this identity. It's what gets me through the day. I'm an athlete. I'm a politician. I'm a carpenter. I'm a teacher. I'm this, I'm that. I've experienced this, I've experienced that. I've done this, I've done that. It tears away at the comfort that the Lord wants us to have as we walk this earth. And so the question is, what's your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is this, the catechism says. A most biblical response, that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood hath fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not one hair can fall from my head. Yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation and therefore by his Holy Spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What is your only comfort in life and in death? in this world that is so cynical and subversive that your life is not your own. You've been bought with a precious, precious price. You were dead and made alive. You were far off and been brought near. You've been adopted as his sons and daughters. What a transformational thing it would be in the life of the church, in the life of this community, in your own individual lives if we would remind ourselves every day, all day, 
that our identity is found in Jesus Christ, and his desire is that we be rooted and built up in him. Not in this other stuff, in him. And brothers and sisters, when we do that, all the other stuff takes on new meaning because then we're doing what Paul told these Christians at Colossae. We're doing all things for the Lord because it's Christ that we serve. Whether word or deed, we're doing it all for the Lord. It is impossible to do everything you do in word or deed for the Lord as his servant if your identity is not rooted and found in him alone. In him alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the days that you give us and we pray for grace this day to remind ourselves and one another of whose we are and what has been done for us and on our behalf. Give us grace to live our Christian commitment. Give us grace to identify with your Son, our Savior. Identify with him in his death, in his burial, and his resurrection. That we might learn what it means to live victoriously, regardless of circumstance, failure, or achievement solely, solely building our lives upon this reality that we are sinners saved by grace. Make us a blessing to one another, we pray this day in Christ's name. Amen. Have a great rest of the day.